There we go. Uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 14. This is where I have we left off. We had just talked uh, about uh, Jesus and the centurion and the centurion's faith. And um, we move directly to the next uh, little miracle that Jesus does. They're all little miracles unless they happen to you. Then it's a big miracle. Uh, it says, when Jesus came into Peter's home, which I'm assuming is their base of operation in Capernaum, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with fever. Um, it doesn't say that Peter said, hey, help my mother-in-law. It says that Jesus noticed it. Uh, remember that these guys were doing these things in their own neighborhood. I mean, Capernaum is where a lot of these guys were from. Uh, and stopping back home on occasion, Peter's mother-in-law lived with Peter is the assumption. Um, if you've ever seen... Um, what the heck is the... The Chosen. It's a it's an online uh, account of Jesus's uh, ministry. It's it's on almost every streaming service. If you haven't watched The Chosen yet, I mean, you it, no matter what streaming service you got, to be the free one, no matter what, it's on there. If you haven't watched that, watch it. It is very well done, and it brings personal things to this. It's very pleasant to watch. It makes you think about a lot of things you never thought about. It's just really well done. Uh, but anyway, and they do a really nice job with this particular uh, account. Anyway. But anyway, that's j basically the introduction to this. But Mark's account is a little richer than this. Uh, from Mark 1, 29-35. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew. So apparently Peter and Andrew were living together. Uh, and John and, with John and James. So the four of them are together, and they go to Peter's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law, which is Peter, I'm sure most of you know that, was lying sick with a fever. Immediately they spoke, and it, this one tells you different, they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. When evening came, after sunset, he... He had began bringing, they had began bringing to him all who were ill and who were demon-possessed. The whole city had gathered at the door. Uh, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. He was, he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Um, that goes a lot further than where we are, but it gives you a flow of events and I, that's why I put it in here what's actually happening because some of these things when we read tie back to this there was a very interesting thing on um, uh, QED I can't remember the name of the program but anyway it was about consciousness how, where consciousness comes from uh, and all this stuff And it, how many times it says Jesus went away by himself to pray and what they were, t and there was a lot on that show about uh, psilocybin and the, the magic mushroom stuff, and how it's profoundly affecting people spiritually. And what somebody said was this: He says psilocybin is the shortcut to meditation. The things that when you meditate, and you meditate correctly, which is basically get all thought out of your mind and what is there. Psilocybin just <laughs> takes you right there. But it made me think, and by no means am I making any proclamations. But how many times? 
Jesus went away all by himself and sat with himself to consider and to ponder and to, I would, I don't use the word meditate in any religious, but to do that. And as I was watching that show, I thought to myself, wow. And I also noticed, by the way, that there's a, I think it was Harvard or a, <laughs> a group of scientists are saying, life probably came on the earth from uh, an alien intelligence that sent it here. That's how we got so at least they're admitting it came from somewhere okay so <laughs> yeah I mean they're serious I mean they're like writing papers about this and if they're saying it out loud they're serious you know uh, but it just does I don't know I just thought I'd throw that past you because I noticed it anyway back to Peter's mother-in-law he touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and waited on him Jesus, Luke's account says Jesus rebuked the fever it says he actually spoke to the fever. Uh, not only did the fever break, but her vigor was immediately restored. Now think about this. Um, she's laying there deathly sick with a fever. He speaks to the fever, it leaves, she gets up and starts cooking. If you've ever had a fever that was that bad, uh, like you ever had pneumonia, you don't just get up, you know, it takes days to recover. But apparently he healed her all the way through. Uh, when evening came, they, the, the people of Capernaum, brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out spirits with a word, and healed all who were ill. <coughs> Apparently, Peter's house became a hub of activity. People were coming to be healed or to see others healed, and I assume the religious leaders and the Romans were watching the events transpired. When a crowd that big shows up anywhere, when it, I mean, and we'll see how big the crowd is in a second, uh, the Romans take notice. They, trust me, they know something's going on. They're, you know, they're watching the crowd, just like any police force would. Well, for the Romans, especially when it considers the Jews, because the Jews were just, they were trouble for the Romans. And also, uh, the religious leaders are starting to really catch on to this Jesus guy. I mean, it's really, we better know something here, is what they're saying. Note that these healings and miracles were done in public in contrast to the leper's healing that we had just uh, gone through. The next verses tell us why and speak the difference between the two types of miracles. Um, what action scriptures uh, refer to as demon possession. As we read this, now we're going to talk about this for a little bit because it's foreign to us. You know, unless you're Pentecostal or charismatic, this is something that's pretty much foreign to us this whole passing out demons and demon possession stuff unless you watch the exorcist or something for most of us when we read it and we look at it it appears to be online with what we would call mental illness um, as far as the actions go however uh, and if Jesus is healing mental illness that's profound as casting out demons trust me because uh, I, I don't know if, you know, if for psychotic people, there's actually a cure other than medication. You're either medicated or you're sick. Uh, but many of the incidences here give details that go beyond mental illness, uh, i.e. the conversations with the spirits, the spirits knowing who Jesus is, when these people who are being having the demons cast out should have no idea who Jesus is. So something supernatural is happening here. They have a special knowledge. Um, 
Oh, so anyway, just bear that in mind because we're going to deal with that. Uh, this was to fill Jesus' healing and casting out demons. And verse 17 tells us why. This is to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our disease. <coughs> That's from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 speaks to the Messiah. So, once again, the reason Jesus is healing people and casting out demons is to prove that he's the Messiah. You know, if you're wondering why it's not happening now, why people aren't being healed in public, it's because there's not a reason for it or a cause or anything to prove at this point. Isaiah 53, 4-5, what they quoted, Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet ourselves, we ourselves esteemed him stricken, in other words, because of us, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Um, this becomes a common thing. Uh, try to keep track <laughs> as you read this. How many times there's a crowd and Jesus is crossed? Now there's a reason for this. It's the At the widest point, the sea is over 8 miles long, 8 miles wide. Uh, and it's 12 miles long, 8 miles wide, 12 miles long. That's a 64 square mile area. To go across it, even eight miles, it takes a whole lot longer to walk all the way up around the circumference of it. In other words, there's a reason he does this. It gets them away from the crowds. Now, once they see that he lands on the other side, that crowd starts, and then these people catch up. I mean, they are literally following him around this big old lake. And when he leaves, they, they take off after him. Uh, then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever I go. Now this is interesting because it's a scribe. This is a, a religious man. This is one of the religious leaders, uh, the, the folks that Jesus has nothing but trouble with. But he calls him teacher, and he said, I'll follow you. This is said after Jesus just moved to get away from the crowd. So let's put it in context. Jesus moves to get away from the crowd, and the scribe, after he lands, says, oh, You keep moving, I'll keep following you. I don't care where you go. You know, I'm going to follow you. So put it in context of what he's saying. <coughs> but it does give us an insight that some of these guys were actually seeking the truth. There was still a remnant in there that was uh, looking for the Lord, that was looking, still looking for the Messiah. Some religious leaders saw Jesus' authority and power, saw his healings and casting out the demons, and the knowledge with which he preached. And they didn't see it as a threat to them or their power. They saw it as a blessing from God, at very least, and possibly the prophet who was meant to come in the order of Moses, the Messiah. But Jesus says to him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, we don't know much about before his ministry started, but man, for three and a half years, he did nothing but move. And that's all he did. Um, no home, you know, no <coughs> guaranteed income, no guarantee of food, no guarantee of shelter. Jesus tells the scribe that following him will not be easy. 
that it will cost uh, what the world values, which is comfort and security. Uh, you turn that all over to God. This is the first time the title Son of Man is used. Uh, it is used 43 times in the New Testament, either by Jesus or by others referring to him. Now, it's used several times throughout the Old Testament. And it usually denotes true humanity of Jesus uh, living in a challenging and fallen world while being truly divine. It's that combination of being facing everything we face while being God. Now, the title was previously given to Ezekiel uh, to note his human frailties. For Ezekiel, it was used 90 times. Ezekiel was called by God, son of man, like continuously. Its common meaning in the Old Testament denotes the lowliness of man. It was a statement of humility. Um, Job 25, Psalms 8, Isaiah 51. Now, however, in Daniel, it is used in a prophetic sense regarding the coming Messiah, which is probably the reason Jesus owns it as his own title. Daniel 7, 13-14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient days and presented before. Oh, excuse me. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, and all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one which cannot be destroyed. Coming from heaven, given dominion over all people eternally. That's the Son of Man. So if you're wondering why Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, that's it. Oh, excuse me. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord. Oh, by the way, when it says disciples, it's not necessarily meaning one of the twelve. I mean, he has a large continuum. There's a whole crowd of people following him. Uh, just uh, village folks, people from the area, religious leaders. Then there's a group of followers who he calls disciples. And we don't really get a sense. I mean, there's a time he sends out, what, 60 or 70 at one time that are his core people. And, of course, inside of that are the disciples that we call the 12. So just that's who we're talking about here, one, one of those outer core guys. <coughs> He said, uh, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Remember, we're still talking about following Jesus and the cost. You know, it started with the guy saying, wherever you go, I'll follow him. And the next guy, we're on a theme here. Uh, uh, another teaching on the cost of discipleship. The first was about physical security. This speaks to earthly relationships, which we all value. Um, what are you willing to give up? Uh, Jewish custom is to bury... On the day one dies. Deuteronomy 21, 22-23 says, If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, you shall hang him on a tree. His corpse shall not hang all night, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who hangs is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord gives you as inheritance. That became pretty much law. Uh, the Jews bury very quickly. It's interesting... Because in Jesus' case, it fell on the Sabbath, and you can't work on the Sabbath. John nineteen thirty one. When the Jews, then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, uh, 
so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was the high day. Ask Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Get them down following Deuteronomy, that they don't hang up there. So the Jews said, hey, break their legs, let them die quick so we can get them down, because they're following Deuteronomy. Now, <coughs> uh, go ahead. Do you want to explain why they broke their legs? Oh yeah, uh, the reason they said break their legs is uh, uh, crucifixion was a horrible death, and what you usually died from—well, you could have died from shock, you could have died from a lot of things—but uh, what you usually died from is asphyxiation. In other words, when you hung with your arms up, you can't breathe. Uh, so what you would do is you would use your feet to push yourself back up, so that you get a grasp of air, and of course that would hurt horribly because there were spikes driven through your ankles. Um, I mean, it was a nasty, nasty death. So what they would do is they'd just get a big stick or a big club and whack their shins and break them so that they couldn't push themselves back up. So they would suffocate quicker. It, it, yeah, it, it's as ugly as that. Um, Chabad.com, which is where I go to for my uh, Jewish stuff. That's spelled C-H-A-B-A-D, by the way. Uh, rather than hold the funeral late on Friday afternoon, the funeral may be postponed until Sunday because the Sabbath intervenes, which would also apply to Jesus. In Luke's account, the disciples first told uh, is, the disciple is first told by Jesus to follow him. Um, this guy who said, let me go bury my father, in Luke's account, Jesus said to him, hey, come follow me. And then the guy responds to this. Matthew picks it up after that question and focuses on the answer. Uh, but Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Luke adds, As for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Uh, Luke also adds a third disciple's request to say goodbye to his family and adds that famous saying of Christ. So, in the other accounts, these go bang, bang, bang. The, the guy who said, uh, you know, um, let me bury my family. Then a, there's another guy right there. It's all going on at one time. You know, he says, well, let me go say goodbye. And uh, Jesus' answer is way down here. But I have so much to have to give. I want you to get to the answer first. Uh, oh, I missed it. Anyway, now, these all seem harsh, and they seem counterintuitive um, to what other things Jesus said. Uh, in verse 22, Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Um in Luke, he says this, and he said to another fellow, follow me, but the Lord said, permit me to first go bury uh, my father. And he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, that's the famous line. And it's connected to these things that don't seem to make sense to us because some of these things are very important in Jewish custom and in Jewish law. Being respectful to your parents, uh, burying your parents. Um, Christianity, he's making a point. Uh, he's using the dramatic, there's several times where Jesus used, where he says, uh, you must hate your mother and father. He's using the dramatic to make a point. I mean, it, it is just the art of uh, dialogue. Uh, what he's saying is Christianity doesn't come cheap. Everyone was seeing the miracles and they were hearing the teachings. They saw the glory. 
but nobody as of yet had seen the price. And trust me, every one of these people ends up paying a price uh, that was about to be prayed uh, for being a disciple. The teaching gets a lot stronger as they get closer to Jesus' death and the persecutions of the church as a whole afterwards. Uh, but this is just the beginning of Jesus giving us a heads up of what's coming. Luke's third account, let me say goodbye, as an interesting contrast. Um, so Jesus isn't saying that you should never go and say goodbye to your parents, that you shouldn't bury your parents. If you want to look at something interesting that proves that point, uh, look at the contrast when Elijah calls Elisha to follow him and to be, take his place as he was plowing his field. Jesus uses extremes to drive a point home. Do what is right by the law in the sight of men, but obedience above all when it comes to conflict between the two. The most important thing you could do is be obedient to the Lord. You follow the law, you do what you're supposed to do. Now, just to give you an idea that that is the point, from 1 Kings 19, 19-21, Elisha and Elijah. Uh, Elijah was the prophet of the Lord who just did amazing. Matter of fact, that's the one who John the Baptist was said to have been uh, in the manner of Elijah. So he was departed from there and found Elisha. This is Elijah. He knows his time is up and he's finding his replacement. The son of uh, Shaphat. Uh, Shaphat. While he was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen before him. That's a lot of oxen. Uh, that's 24 oxen pulling a plow. He was with the 12th. So he was in the, either in, probably in front. And Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle over him. Threw his coat on him. He left his auction and ran after Elijah. So Elijah just walks up, throws his coat on him and walks away. <laughs> Elijah knows what this means. Uh, he left his ox and ran after Elijah and said, Please, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will go follow He asked the same thing of Elijah that the disciple had asked of Jesus. And Elijah says to him, Go back again, for what, uh, for what have I done to you? In other words, how am I stopping you? No, go ahead, do that. It's, basically, you know, it's worded a little awkward, but basically he's saying, I'm not stopping you, go ahead. So then he returned from following him and took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen, in other words, the harnesses and the wood and all that stuff, and gave it to the people and they ate. So they had a big party. That would have been his family, that would have been everybody else. Then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. He basically became his sidekick until he was taken up and then he took his place. In Matthew 16, a little bit later, 24 through 26, Instead of just uh, giving us these sayings as a precursor for what's coming, as I said, Jesus starts to become a lot clearer about it. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits its soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, what he says here in chapter 8 is codified and solidified in chapter 16. 
uh, in John 6, they, just to give you an understanding of people really weren't grasping it, uh, 53 through 69, Jesus uh, talking about leaving. Uh, people are leaving Jesus because they don't understand what he's saying. Um, he's confusing them uh, because they're not thinking spiritually. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, which is him and everybody knows it, and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. Okay, imagine you just showed up and, you know, you saw a miracle and you said, you heard him say some other things and you're like, wow, okay, let's, maybe I'll follow this guy. And then you hear him say this. Now, for us, this is easy. We get the whole picture. I mean, we understand communion. We understand the Last Supper. We understand exactly what Jesus is saying. These guys are just hearing this for the first time. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who eats me and, ha and also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from... Now, now he starts to give a little explanation. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. They understand that. They're Jews. What he's saying is manna was a precursor to me. God sent manna because he knew I was coming. He knew I would have this message and I would say these words. He's linking himself to manna. Not as the fathers ate and died, but he who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue <laughs> as he taught in Capernaum. So, not only are there disciples there, all the religious leaders are there. And this, trust me, when he says this, it all starts, man. You could just hear the little people hear what they want to hear. Nobody asks. They just made some, they, uh-oh, you know, Jim Jones, you know, like, uh-oh, what's this guy talking about? Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? It says, many. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbling at this, said to them. In other words, they're not saying it to him. They're talking among themselves. What in the world did we get ourselves into? What's this guy talking about? I don't know how many times this happens in Scripture where Jesus speaks to what their people are thinking. But it's multiple times. And Jesus says to them, does this cause you to stumble? In other words, Jesus is saying, am I freaking you out? <laughs> yeah, that's basically what Jesus is saying. And um, what then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. Remember, he's talking about uh, eternal life, who eats my flesh. So now he's explaining it to them. Uh, you know, this is not, you're going to see me ascend to heaven. And the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. He's saying, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. It's pretty plain. I'm not talking about you literally eating my body and drinking my blood. I'm telling you, this is spiritual. The words are spirit. I'm talking about spiritual things. But there are some of you who do, who, who do not believe. So he already knows they're there. That no matter what I say to you, it doesn't matter. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. 
And it doesn't say Jesus caused them not to believe or wouldn't allow them to believe because this verse gets used by people to put across a certain theology. It just says he knew who they were. And what, I said, what I've always said is Jesus knowing doesn't mean Jesus caused or allowed. And as he was saying, for this reason I said to you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him from the Father. So in other words... Not all of you are going to want to get what I just said. Um, it's spiritual. And the people who are really looking for the truth, they get it. The rest of you are going to hear what you want to hear. You're going to do what you want to do. You're going to claim I said this when you know it's not what I would. And I'm telling you it's not what I'm saying. As a result of this, many of the disciples withdrew and were not walking with them anymore. So basically, some hard theology came out, and they left. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? And one of the beautiful, most beautiful lines in all of Scripture, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So... Whatever you say, it's right. What he's saying is, whatever you say, it's right, and I believe it. And if I don't understand it, you'll explain it to me. <laughs> and uh, Which is profound. Uh, especially as everybody... I mean, here's your chance to go. Everybody else is... It's that turning point where Jesus has created his own remnant with this. By saying this the way he said it, he weeded out the herd. <laughs> he, he, he got the goats out. And... Um, even though he explained it. And he did. He says, this is spiritual. Don't you, you know, and, you know, it was profound. But anyway, Jesus gives a deep spiritual teaching at, and the synagogue at Capernaum. That's these people. This is still in Capernaum. Capernaum is a big time happening. We talk about Jerusalem all the time. Most of the stuff Jesus did and said was in Capernaum. He speaks a great spiritual truth using earthly examples, eating his flesh, drinking his blood. Same as we commonly use in communion. And he explains it further in the upper room when he gives us communion. Many of his disciples are taken back by not seeing the spiritual application of metaphorical language. Jesus tells them, I'm speaking to you spiritually, but they still don't get it. And leave because the teaching is hard or offensive to them. You know, how often when we find something that Jesus teaches that we find offensive, we try to change it, we try to manipulate it, instead of asking him, Lord, what do you mean by this? And do you want me to accept it at face value? If so, in the words of Peter, I do. You're God, I'm not. Okie dokie. You have to give up how you think it should be. Rohan to what Jesus said is truth. The intellectual challenge is real. It is real. Our pride doesn't want to let go of our ability to define truth for ourselves. It just doesn't. Verse 23. When he got to the boat, into the boat, his disciples followed. So he lays down some heavy teaching, and then he gets in a boat and starts driving away. He tells people, you know, what's going to cost you to follow me? And then he gets back in the boat to go back across the lake. Now, these, these people he just said that to were probably the people who followed him all the way around the lake the first time. So they meet him on this side of the lake, and he tells them how hard it's going to be to follow me. And then he gets back in the boat and goes back. I wonder how many people went back around the lake, you know, after he told them some hard truth. 
Uh, once again, Jesus heads out of the water with the same twelve in the same boat. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. Let me see where I'm at before I go into this one. Two minutes. I'll just shut that off. Um, we'll just read it without getting into it. Um, behold, there was a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. This is profound to me. Uh, Jesus sleeping through the storm doesn't mean he's not aware of the storm. It means he's not worried about it. He's at absolute and total peace. When he faced them, or when we face them, it's how it should be because storms always come. Peace that passes all understanding comes from one place, the author of peace. He knows, he just isn't worried about it. So, he's given us an example to be like him, be able to sleep well no matter what rages around you. Uh, I don't do that. I mean, as long as nothing that I really care about isn't happening bad about something I care about, that's the best way to put it, then I could sleep like a baby. But if it's something I care about and it seems distressing or something that I don't want to happen has happened, I lay awake thinking about how I should fix it and my little mind will not stop and rest in Christ. I mean, it's okay to think about how you should fix it and what you could do. And once you've thought it through, it belongs to Him. And I catch myself. I mean, like, after six hours of tossing and turning, I look at the clock. It's five in the morning, and I went, what am I doing? What am I doing? You know, I'm going to be dead in a little bit. <laughs> What's this going to matter then? You know, I'm, I'm heading towards glory. I'm heading towards the Jordan, and I'm worried about what's happening on the side of me here. Uh, uh, what, God doesn't know? You know? Uh, note the opposite events. <coughs> Uh, opposing events here that happened. In, I, I, I want you to compare what's happening right here to what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, before Jesus' death. Who's sleeping and who's awake? Uh, Jesus is awake for the decision he must make about the death, about death, and everyone else is asleep. Something really, really important needs to be dealt with. Jesus is up dealing with it. He's making a decision that will affect all of our eternities. He's deciding if you and I are worth it. And he says to them, Hey guys, stay awake with me, man. This is really important. Pray with me. Stay awake with me. Two times. And they, yeah, okay. <clears throat> them guys ain't worried about a thing. The fate of the world is hanging on the balance. And they're sleeping like a baby. They're in a boat that has a storm. They're panicking. The, honestly, the being able to see the spiritual significance in life will give you peace. It doesn't really matter. You know, I always told my kids, whenever or Cheryl, whenever they were really stressing over something, I, after I would let them talk and talk it out, and I would say, yeah, well, what's the worst that could happen? And then I would say this. Uh, I want you to consider your, think about you being on your deathbed. You know you're on your deathbed. You know your time's here. It's just a couple breaths away. Let me ask you. Are you going to be thinking about what you're worrying about right now at that time? No. I said, well, then it doesn't matter. Then it doesn't matter now. 
If it didn't matter, if it doesn't matter then, it doesn't matter now. Be at peace. Anyway, he wakes them. Uh, he wakes them up to stay up with them in the garden, but they won't. The difference between the two events is in the boat. It was just dealing with the events of life. In the garden, it was dealing with the fulfillment of the specific will of God. It was really important, and they had no problems whatsoever sleeping through it. Uh, I'll read Mark, and then we'll go on. Well, wrap up here. Mark four thirty six through forty one. I know, I have the thing, but I just... Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. This is interesting. Mark gives us a little in more interesting uh, stuff. There's some... Uh, not only were they running around the lake, anybody who had a boat was following him. And remember he just said, you know, about how following me is going to be hard? <laughs> Please, bear in mind what happened. He just told everybody following me is going to be hard. They got the boat, followed him, and they went right into a storm. So... Okay, now you see what I'm saying, you know. And there arose a fierce gale of wind. The waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. They were being swamped. They couldn't get it out faster than it was coming in. Jesus himself was in the stern asleep on a cushion. Apparently those were on all the boats. And he, they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the winds died down, and it became perfectly calm. Instantly. Poof. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Okay. So they were afraid when they were dying. And then when Jesus stopped the storm, they got really afraid. Like, I don't know how much you could see, and then you're not surprised anymore. But when Jesus stood up and said, Be hush, be still, and then it stopped instantly. I mean, it didn't wind down. It stopped. It was a sheet of glass. And they're like, uh-oh. <laughs> this guy's God. Who then is this that every even the wind should obey him? We'll leave off there and we'll pick up on 25. Uh, we'll go back to Matthew's account. But I find it absolutely profound. Uh, we'll deal with this. We'll deal with a few other things. And we're, we're going to talk about demon possession and Jesus' ministry. It needs to be talked about. We need to have an understanding of it because uh, what's coming up is where he cast the demons out of the one account says two, one account says one, the, the crazy dude that was living among the tombs and they went into the swine and uh, that's a good spot to sit and deal with it. So if you want to look some stuff up, here's what I want you to understand. Just look for yourself. <coughs> How many times after the Gospels is demon casting or out talked about mm, a couple times maybe in Acts after Acts nothing there's nothing said I mean look it up for yourselves take a look through you know Google how many how many demons was cast out and who cast them out um, yeah while Jesus was still alive a lot of it was going on um, in the book of Acts when the early church was forming before scripture had become scripture it was still occurring after that it talks about them being real. It talks about their influence. It talks about fighting them. There's nothing about casting them out. It, it's just something that I found. So you want to do a little homework or look ahead, see what you can find out. It's rather interesting. Any comments, criticisms, anything like that, questions? Verse 25 is where I left off. So we've seen that Jesus has told us what the cost was 
and then he showed them what the cost was because <laughs> they followed him out into the ocean and out into the sea and faced a problem right off the bat so because they were following jesus they faced storms there that should be something that should be very clear to all of us if you think that following jesus is going to take the storms away it's how we get through the storms, how we act in the storms, and the witness that we uh, show in the storms that changes this world. Let's pray. Lord, come before you and we thank you for your word. As always, Lord, we ask that your word find a home in our hearts and when it gets there, it changes us so that we're part of the solution to the problems of this world, not part of the problems. Help our lights to shine, Lord, uh, into this darkness. And Father, I ask that you watch over my brothers and sisters, make them strong, wise, brave, and compassionate. Help them to glorify your name and what they think, what they do, and what they say. In Jesus' name, amen.